0: You're listening to WALT Homegrown Homemade Radio. Hello, Ghost Family. Welcome to Family Ghosts. Today on the show, we're playing a rerun, but I suspect it's an episode that many of you never actually got the chance to hear because it only existed in our show feed temporarily. This is an episode from a series that we created shortly after season one wrapped, when season two of our show was not a sure thing. So while we were waiting to find out if there would be more family ghosts, the producers of the show and I made a series of episodes in which those producers introduced me to the work of artists that they felt had been inspirational to them in telling the kinds of stories that we tell here on Family Ghosts. and today. I want to play you one of my favorites of those bonus episodes that we made, which featured my friend and former Family Ghost producer, Jason DeLeon. We're going to pick this bonus episode up sort of midstream with a little introduction to Jason that I wrote, and then Jason will take it the rest of the way. And then at the end of the episode, there's a sort of bonus bonus, if you will, which will become clear when you hear it. But it is an Easter egg specifically for those of you who love our episode, A Spirit of Vengeance, featuring storyteller Jill Chenault. But first, an electric dissatisfaction. And the first producer I'd like you to meet. Okay. Um, this is not your story. This is someone else. Is Jason DeLeon.
1: I am very bad at taking notes. I take them, and I don't know where I put them.
0: (laughs) This is the story of the moment I knew that Jason and I were going to work very well together. It was the end of a long Friday here at Family Ghosts HQ. And as we are wont to do on such Fridays, Jason and I had a joint session with our therapist, Dr. Basil Hayden. If you are not familiar with The Good Doctor... Let's just say that his wise counsel is 80-proof. Upon completion of various podcast and baseball-related musings, I was heading out of the office when Jason said, Oh, Sam, by the way, if you have time this weekend, read the first three
1: pages of John Steinbeck's Cannery Row. Just the first three? I asked.
0: You'll see what I mean. And with that, Jason put his headphones back on and settled in for a late-night edit. My walk home from HQ takes me right past the Greenlight Bookstore, and I stopped in to see if they had a copy of Cannery Row. Pleased to discover that they did, I flipped it open, and I started reading. The last paragraph on page 3 goes like this. How can the poem and the stink and the grating noise, the quality of light, the tone, the habit, and the dream, be set down alive? When you collect marine animals, There are certain flatworms so delicate that they are almost impossible to capture whole, for they break and tatter under the touch. You must let them ooze and crawl of their own will onto a knife blade, and then lift them gently into your bottle of seawater. And perhaps that might be the way to write this book, to open the page and to let the stories crawl in by themselves. I shut the book and immediately texted Jason three words, those words being, Oh my God. To which he wrote back,
1: Sam, we have to let the stories crawl onto the blade.
0: Jason coaxed so many of my favorite moments from our first season onto the blade, but I am most grateful to him by far for his stewardship of our season finale, None of Your Damn Business, which was a story that I told, and which was an incredibly volatile experience, both from a narrative and an emotional standpoint. I will never forget the moment early in the process when I told Jason about the various struggles I was encountering with the piece, after which he leaned back in his chair for a while and then looked at me and said, an electric dissatisfaction. Somehow those three words became a guiding mantra over the months that followed. And as I later learned from Jason, they come from the singer-songwriter Josh Ritter, whose music Jason has loved for a long time. Here's a little taste from Josh's most recent album, Gathering. So, for this month's bonus episode, you're going to hear Jason in conversation with Josh about the enduring allure of ghosts, the inexact science of songwriting, and just what the hell he meant by an electric dissatisfaction. Stay tuned.
1: I remember the night I became a Josh Ritter nut. There's a venue called City Winery down in the West Village of Manhattan. It was the first night there of Josh's Works in Progress tour, and it turned out to be the last, at least until later that spring. Josh lost his voice that night after singing nearly 30 songs over the span of two hours. I'm the kind of person whose Instagrams come few and far between, but that night I felt the need to capture what was happening in that room. I'd never seen a performance quite like it.
2: Mama got to look at you and got a little worried. Papa got to look at you and got a little worried. The pastor got to look, said y'all have had a hurry, send they off to college in missouri now you come back saying you know a little bit about every little thing they ever hope you'd ever figure out the red sea, the dead sea, the sermon on the mound you want to see a miracle watch but get down now
1: <laughs> <laughs> now i have this like super dumb smile on my face mm-hmm. but it's because like that was the moment i became like a josh Ritter nut oh, uh, yeah. i i knew your music but what it looked like to me is like all those songs were hitting you for the first time again yeah uh yeah. and i and, and so like i just want to start by asking you off like what what does it actually feel like when you're on stage? Is that is that description kind of like apt that it feels like it's hitting you for the first time?
2: Yeah, I, I it it is. There's like, and I and I I don't know that it's a skill, but it's something that I feel very lucky that I I, I have, which is that once I get on stage, um, the rest of me goes to sleep, you know, and 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 any any worries throughout the day, any 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 pressing concerns just seem to
1: disappear and for that reason being on stage is just a you know it's the reward i want to dig a little bit more into that performance from that night because the idea behind the works in progress tour um i was just completely thrown by because i can't imagine working out things in public working yeah. out what uh, like a, a personal um piece of art quite frankly like in public um and you certainly played songs that night that were polished that you had been done that, that had you had been worked on it, working on for years yeah um but you would also do this thing where you would sing a song, you would hit the guitar for a little while and just be like insert chorus here. Yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> insert instrument here. Yeah. <laughs> um and so like what what is that process like for you creatively of working things out on stage?
2: Well, performing is 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 really just it's it's a metaphor for larger life. There's there, there are uh, always things that don't go as planned. There are always things that you wish could have gone differently, or or maybe you fell down on your face once or twice, and uh, but but that you get embarrassed and then you move on. You know, you, mm-hmm. it's 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 we're all human, fallible creatures, and 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 part of the joy of of I think watching performing or performing is the chance to take those things that are mistakes you know, and leave them leave them behind as, as, as gracefully and without as, without as little stir as possible.
1: Right. And I guess that makes me think, Josh, your music inspired like a ton of this first season of Family Ghosts. Thank you. And, and in the process of making that show, we would hit episodes or like come across ideas within episodes that we didn't quite know what to do with. Mm-hmm um and we didn't know if it was like if we're gonna put it into the story take it out of the story uh i I've, i always wanted to work for the audience but there's always moments where i was just like that is a very it's a detail that i don't want to get rid of yeah and i'm not sure how i'm going to convey it yeah so thinking thinking back at like the way you work through stuff on stage how much of the audience is in your head the entire is it is, is it always in your head the entire time that you're just like I, i'm doing this purely for them
2: well, it's it's it is a, it's a selfish enterprise because you know I find that that I I find the experience of playing a song for for someone to be a lot like when you see a, a a movie that you love. You see a movie that you love, you can't get enough of talking about it, everything about it, thinking about it all the time, you're telling all your friends. You finally get some people to go with you, and the first five minutes you realize, man, this movie sucks. You know, this is like, this is bad, and like, <laughs> uh, and you, and you feel kind of embarrassed. I feel that way when I I, I find that I, I I only really need like one person to to play a song for before I realize what I feel about it, and you know, and it's uh. like, and if the other person like really enjoys it, that's great, but it also shows me uh, inside the song. Things that I want to smooth out or rough out, or maybe I decide I, this was this was a fun song to play once, but I'm not gonna like, I'm gonna I'm gonna let it like feed the other songs. And it's different than with with writing like a novel, where a novel you or or any other thing where there's a delayed reaction, um, you know, where you're working in your room and then and then only months later do people get to experience what you've been working on. You, you get that feeling right at the moment, and I found that when I was writing my book, uh, I, I missed that moment of. Uh, uh, at the end of the day, at the end of the afternoon, playing that song for somebody because you know, you're it kind immediately of
1: immediately gratified.
2: Yeah, it was great. I'm and I'm hooked. I'm right. Right on the immediate, <laughs> on the immediate gratification.
1: Yeah. So, I, I want to go into a little bit of how you think about um, structuring your songs. Um, so, to start things off, I like how do you find that songs typically strike you first?
2: I think about it a lot of times like, you know, I have this feeling in my mind of, of, of somebody making one of those really complicated little, uh, like, secret boxes out of wood, you know, the types that are that are, that are all dovetailed and, and, and really nice and there's always a secret button, yes. you know. And and those those things, the, the construction of the thing, the time you have to put into figuring it out, all these things are how a song works together. Some days in the morning I, I wake up and I've got a... I've got a, a line in my head and it won't get out, you know, and there are times when you go fallow, you know, especially at the end of a record where you feel like, well, you know, this is probably it, I have nothing more to say, and then you just lie fallow for, for a little while, and, and then one day again you wake up with the moxie, and, and, and you want to like, you want to write something new, and, and I wish there was a, a perfect way of doing it, but I also feel that that each song does, does sort of demands its own way of being written. And then in the moment when I'm writing it, I don't remember, I don't remember how. You know, there's very few times I remember writing a song, but they always seem to come about at a time when when all you have a whole bunch of parts kind of on the table in front of you and you're just sort of, you know, bashing them together to see what fits.
1: I will say on Family Ghosts, one of the things that we try to do was let the story live in the skin that it was kind of born in and mm. and we but we weren't really quite sure it was it was like I'm trying to come up with the right metaphor but it felt like these stories like you said demanded their own way of being told yeah and and sometimes I felt like we were fighting against us trying to impose something onto it yeah yeah i'm still thinking like yeah. through the first season because like making that show is making this show particularly was very Difficult in that respect because you want to feel like you have more control over the thing than you might actually yeah. than you actually do. And do you, I guess you feel that way?
2: I do. I find that trying to force songs into a concept is difficult for me because it limits what I feel like I'm uh, where the songs are going. I find that my my internal editor picks up really early on whether a song is going to go where I want it to go, and then can so easily discard it. Several years ago, I started writing with the idea of. Editing nothing from the songs, like whatever song came out. You know, I, I was in, it was in July. I wrote a Christmas song just for the fun of it. Uh, <laughs> it was in my head, and and I thought I can't put this off until until the colder weather. But I find that the side effect of that is that if you're writing regularly and you're doing, uh, uh you know, working on a regular time frame, that you tend to have obsessions and things that you're thinking about all the time in that period of time you have these these things that are just a part of your life or a part of a part of what you're working on and they take over and they don't just uh, kind of infect one song they infect them all so that the, all the songs have certain preoccupations and those preoccupations can serve as a concept but only like you said after the fact, once, you're, once you've settled and you start to see this, the, the outline of the whole project, then all the things that you were thinking about that whole time start to jump to the front. Weird, you know? If this was the Cold War, we could keep each other warm. I said on the first occasion that I met Marie We were crawling through the hatch that was the missile silo door And I don't think that she really thought that much of me I never had to learn to love her Like I learned to love the bomb
1: In Josh's song, The Temptation of Adam, he writes about two characters who are in an underground missile silo. The story is told from the perspective of Adam, who falls in love with Marie. It's a song I gravitated to all last summer as we were making the show. And I couldn't quite put my finger on why. But when I asked Josh about it, much like he just said, all the things that I was actually thinking about jumped to the front. The way in
2: with that song was was the way it happens sometimes with certain types of songs where the first line is is, you know, just jumps into your head. If this was the Cold War, we could keep each other warm. Just struck me as like... Not only like a cheesy one liner, but also like a, a good way to enter a song, a good way to draw a character who is like not necessarily the most serious person, but you know is is' in, is here in in charge of this very very serious job of like of of being in charge of the the nuclear missile silo and that that like that these people who are underneath the ground with each other for months at a time you know end up becoming you know just human beings to each other. They're not just uh uniforms. And I liked the idea that, that these two people would, would uh sort of fall in love in a in a in a slow and kind of like grudgingly slow way, but that it would become more and more of an intense relationship as the time for them to part got closer. When you start off with a blank page and you have one or two lines, then really the question is like do you have the story all in your mind or are you willing to take a character and follow them where it goes with a song like Temptation of Adam or the Curse or or mm-hmm. some of these songs that are like long love story songs they like the, the I don't know where they're going to go at the beginning they and and the characters they you know, I won't say that the characters jump in and surprise me and, and, and uh, you know, I'm writing them. But, but, but I'm surprised at where they end up going, these songs, you know, things aren't necessarily wrapped up with a bow at the end. They can be left at a cliffhanger. An important thing to do is, is, to, is to let the characters and let the song write itself, you know, and, and to go in the places where it, it, you didn't think it was going to go because really that's way more interesting and way more fun so in that sense I you know, writing writing temptation of Adam, which is about, you know, whether whether this person will push the button and end the world so that he can spend his life with this person underground. Like <laughs> is, is, uh, is is left as temptation because I didn't know where it was gonna go and I didn't want to give a like a,
1: a pad answer. Yeah. The last line is and I'm tempted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so and that while you are sleeping I hold you closer just because As our time grows short, I get a little nervous. So I think about the big one. WWI. Would we ever really care if the world had ended? And you could hold me here forever. Like you're holding me tonight. I think about that great big button, and I'm tan. Thank
1: you. You had mentioned these long love story songs. When I think about love stories, and, and also in particular, like, the long love story songs that you write, I'm, I'm trying to remember where I read this, but, like, I read this somewhere where every love story is a ghost story, mm. which is a story of something that... I looked I, it up during the conversation, and the line comes from D.T. Max's biography of David Foster Wallace, who apparently wrote the phrase frequently in his letters. Every love story is a ghost story. When I think about family ghosts, Maybe we didn't set out to make stories that were love stories, but a lot of them ended up being that way. The struggle I had in a lot of the writing of that story is something that you mentioned. Was just like, there's not a clean bow at the end of a lot of these mm-hmm. um, because they are love stories. Yeah. Where it's not going to be tidy. It's yeah. Not, it's not gonna, you're not going to be able to package the thing. I think... We're born with a lot of fairy tales that are just like, oh, you could. There's, there's an end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's an end, and I think specifically with the show, the hardest time we had was finding the beginning and finding the end. Mm-hmm. I think we always had the middle. Right, right, right. I right. wonder if, if that's something you feel. When yeah. You writing songs, like you have the, you have the heart of the thing, but you don't have the, 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 the hands and the legs. So right. To speak. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well,
2: that's like I feel it comes down to like the idea of whether you're telling a morality tale. Or whether you're telling a a story, like a, like a fable, it tells you exactly how things are in life, you yeah. know, the tortoise and the hare, mm-hmm. you know, and that is beautiful and it sets up perfectly, and it becomes a, a truism in its own way, you know but but when're we're, when we're writing stories like I, and songs, I find that like the songs that I've always gravitated to. The songs that I, I love are not the ones that tell me how it is, you know. They tell me they tell me how things might be, you know, and how things could be, and you know, like "Blowing in the Wind" is like you know a classic example of that. You know, here's a here's a, a, a song that's only questions, and and the answer is 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 off there somewhere but never addressed, and and I feel that that's one thing that we 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 need with stories and songs is uh. Ambiguity, because we're we're ambiguous creatures. We don't necessarily pick up the the morals when we when we should, and and, and, we, and we certainly don't do a very good job, you know, carrying them forward in our own lives from time to time. I mean, we we talk about them a lot, but it's very hard. You know, I think Bob Dylan said we do mo- what most what is most convenient, and then we repent, and like and uh, <laughs> and I think that that's a little bit more strikes to that. So so the yeah. the the thing that I think about ghosts is that they are so much like a love song. They're so much or a or a or a song or a, or a story. They are not a moral. They're they're more like a possibility. You know, of what of 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 what could happen. You know, um, like thinking of a Christmas carol or whatever these these ghosts that not only can like speak to the past but also give a vision of the future and so they float in this weird area between what we might do you know and what we do Typically, you know, we're just like haunted by all all our ghosts, you know, all the time. You know, the things we didn't do, the things we hope to do, and addressing those kinds of of hopes and desires, but also regrets, are a big part of, of creating a song that I feel is 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 real and doesn't
0: doesn't wrap everything up in a bow. We'll have more of Jason DeLeon in conversation with Josh Ritter after the break. Welcome back to the show. Let's head back into the studio where producer Jason DeLeon is talking to singer-songwriter Josh Ritter.
1: I have have a question about nonfiction and fiction. The show that we make, Family Ghosts, nonfiction show, it is a long form narrative storytelling kind of show. Yeah. Um, We gather stories from these legends of families that people have told and passed down from generations or sometimes they're even recent, more recent than that. And then we just kind of see what comes out the other side, I think. Yeah. Uh, But we have to adhere to a truth. Yeah. And so when I listen to your music, there's an art being made that sounds like it's coming a lot from personal experience. Yeah. Um, I wonder where you start to lose that sense to adhere to the truth to make a fiction that will elevate the actual truth sure of the matter. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah,
2: absolutely. Well, I'd say that I've never cared for autobiographical songwriting. There's people who are great at it mm-hmm. and who love doing it. It's not my form and it's not one that I naturally go to. But at the same time I have to say that all writing is autobiographical. You know, writing is I I believe just an excretion of the human body, you know. It's there's ink there's ink involved, you know. But you start off with a with a with a simple thing like, like just to use a country idiom, you know, she doesn't love me anymore. You know, <laughs> you can only tell that story about yourself so many times before yes. people are like, man, you are you are depressing the hell out of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also, come on, get your life together. But there are other times when when you have that, you know, she doesn't love me anymore, and you get the chance to imagine why she doesn't love him anymore. And when and what happened between them and, and like who are who 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 you know, who stepped in the way or what was the what was the catalyst for this? And like and those things to me are always so interesting to to think about and to imagine and far more fun to imagine than to uh, open up my own book of, of troubles and and, and, and and read from one of those pages. You know, I find that like it's way more fun to have somebody living in Topeka than to have somebody, like, living in my house, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and once you find out that they're living in Topeka, then all these other ideas start to open up, you know? Like, what's their kitchen like in the morning? Like, what happened on Tuesday? Those things are so much more fun to write about. I try not to let facts get in the way. <laughs> you know, right? There's the facts of what people will do in life. I remember reading this thing that that Flannery O'Connor was uh, passed on a story to uh, that she had written to someone, a neighbor down the road, and the neighbor came back and said, "This is just what people do," you know, or "So this is the way some people are," and that's really what you're trying to go for, is like you know, the truth of what would happen in the situation that you're creating, not the truth that happens in the daily life because, you know, we can't all have all the experiences that would, would end up shaping, like, such a wide range of what you write about.
1: That response prompted two questions in my head. Um, the first one is, I think one, one thing that I personally struggle with in, in telling stories is the fact that it it, it feels like uh, she doesn't love me anymore. It feels like it's been done before. Like, that yeah. that that kind of song has been done before and in making this show family Ghost, there's there's a lot of long-form audio storytelling shows um that exist with scoring sound scripts and all that kind of stuff and it kind of makes it a little bit difficult to trust that the thing will stand out on its own merits mm. kind of um and i wonder if that's a thing that you think about i remember
2: like when I first heard maybe it was roller or Beethoven, like the Beatles, it was amazing to hear this this band covering this song, covering it closely to the, what the original was, but it was the Beatles and it was like so it became the a, a Beatles a Beatles song in its own way, you know and I feel that that you know you can tell the same story over and over again and, and we've proven it you know there's so few archetypes right. for our storytelling. Mm-hmm that, like, really you have to come to terms with the idea that you're going to tell the same story that everybody else is telling. But it's really how do you, uh, how do you see it in a different way? Yeah. Like, I, I love this. My mom has this quote on her window in her office, which uh, I remember reading as a young kid that said, uh, by Pascal, that said, uh, see what everybody else has seen and think what no one else has thought. And, like, you know, we all see the things, but the, the challenge in writing... Uh, writing something that is original is 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 putting new new flesh on those old bones, you mm-hmm. know, and and that's really the the fun part, you know, because because you know, every everybody knows why why she left the dude, but like <laughs> but like but like what does he know about
1: it, you know? What's what's his take, you know? One of the ways I've been able to grapple with that particular question for myself is that a few years ago I started reading this poet Frank Bedart. He's an amazing poet, but one of the lines in his poems is uh, this quote, we fill pre-existing forms, and when we fill them, we change them and are changed. Yeah. And when I read that, I think it it, it lifted that burden of just being like, everything already exists. Yeah. But how, how can the thing that already exists change for you and make you change yeah. a little bit on the inside? And I wonder, when you're making a song, do you feel like at the end of that process that Something in something has turned in you a little bit.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's a there's this beautiful feeling of of, and I think maybe one of the main reasons for for writing and continuing to write is is that feeling of of kind of inner transformation. Because with a song or with poetry, I find these to be the most portable forms of of wisdom that we have as humans you know (laughs) like when i listened to to leonard cohen say there's a crack in everything that's how the light gets in that's like you could spend a huge book reading that that one truism you Mm -hmm. know and 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 he has distilled it down to a single line and you can carry
1: that line with you wherever you go in your life and it it helps you and this this is the reason why i wanted to talk to josh as you heard at the top of the show There was a phrase of his that I found while working on the final episode of the first season, and it literally changed the trajectory of the piece. Electric dissatisfaction. When me and Sam were working closely on the story of his uncle, that phrase just kept popping out at us, because we were telling the story of his uncle, but there was something else happening the entire time in the background. An electric dissatisfaction. It's the line that we carried with us to guide the story, and so I asked Josh what that phrase means to him. Dissatisfaction is something that I've come to terms with
2: in the last several records, where it's not dissatisfaction with the record at all. It's a dissatisfaction with myself Mm -hmm. for not being able to, like, capture that kind of dark matter, which is always out there, and we hear it in our heads. We hear the perfect story, Mm -hmm. and it has all these things, but we can't tell it that way. With every story, there's, there's the matter as you tell it, but then there's the dark matter that is out there in the world, all the other influences, all the other things, you know, the, the stuff that's left unsaid, the unspoken stuff, the stuff that has become family legend or become uh, a part of, a part of our, our lives, that has an influence on us and, and we know it affects us, but we don't know exactly how and we don't maybe have the words to be able to put that all into, in, into a story or, or, or something because the story has to be portable. Once we start packing in all this other stuff, mm-hmm. we, we you know, it's it's harder, but we know it's there. We just don't sometimes know what it's for. And I feel that's what keeps us always telling the next story and trying, you know, trying to do it again, trying to get it perfect, because you know, okay, I learned something from this song. This is what I learned, this song is is, is great the way it is, but there's something about it that I missed and I'm gonna take that forward, I'm gonna write the next song, and we always think we're gonna get there. But, uh, the electric dissatisfaction is, is really what I feel like is what keeps us alive. You know, it keeps us moving forward, always trying to do the next thing a little, a little better, always trying to describe that dark matter that's out there that we never really can quite get a, get a handle on.
1: I just want to say that, like, your words and the spirit of your music guided this process so much and, um... So I sincerely thank you for taking some time to just like come out here and
2: chat with me. Thanks for for giving me the chance. This was awesome.
1: Thanks a lot.
0: So earlier in the show, you heard Jason talking to Josh about a moment of live performance and how that moment was the moment when Jason knew he was going to be a Josh Ritter fan for life. I wanted to talk about a similar moment for me. As we told you in the intro to the episode we made with Jill Chenault, it was obvious from the first time I spoke to her on the phone that she was a -a one-of-a-kind storyteller. And as I mentioned in the credits of that episode, the opportunity to collaborate with Jill came from the fantastically named Secret Society of Twisted Storytellers, an organization in Detroit run by Satori Shakur. Before I even got on the phone with Jill, So Tori suggested I check out one of her performances at the Secret Society. I wanted to play you a little clip from the story that made me realize I needed to get on the phone with Jill right away.
3: She's a retired teacher, my mom. First and second grade. She used to make pinatas for her classrooms. And she would fill them up with candy and toys that she bought with her own money. She would keep food on hand in her classroom, or sometimes just bring it from home, for kids who she suspected weren't getting enough to eat at home. And when she had children that didn't behave in school, she would bring them home with her. Bring them home for dinner. She made us play with them. (laughs) And when she took them home after dinner, she would invite them to choose a toy to take home with them. Our toys. But that's my mother. She's just a really, really nice person. When her friend Arlene had cancer, my mother fought that fight with her for 15 years, and she cooked food for Arlene's family regularly and just took it over there. When Arlene was too sick to get off the kitchen floor, my mother laid down on the floor with her. That's the kind of person she is. My mother can love or pray you out of a coma or cancer. And when kids teased me about having buck teeth, and I would cry, my mother held me on her lap and said, just ignore them. And every once in a while, she'd stop what she was doing and just look at me and say, you're a pretty little girl, as if she just noticed it. Now we both knew she was lying. (laughs) I could barely close my lips around all those teeth, but my mother wanted me to feel good and to feel pretty and just be patient until she could get me to an orthodontist. Now. There's a side to my mother that most people never see. My mother can cuss you out so bad that she will singe off your eyebrows and your eyelashes. She would also discipline us with these mysterious kind of confusing commands and statements. I remember when I bounced a ball in the house, my mother said to me, if you don't stop that, you better. I didn't know what that meant. But I knew, I should stop. When my sister and I would run around playing with the other kids after church while the adults were socializing, my mother would say, you better get someplace and sit down. And grown men started looking around for a seat. <laughs> my mother was very, very nice, but she was stern. I remember the dreaded JL Hudson's incident. My sister had run off and my mother couldn't find her. And she was crying and running through the store, searching and a sales lady jumped in to help her. And then my sister jumped out from a circular rack of clothes and said, boo, (laughs) and started laughing. While the ooh from boo was still kind of hanging in the air my mother snatched her up with one arm and wore her little behind out right there in jail hudson's she finally did put her down but i have to tell you my mother remains the queen of the one-arm snatch-up she could snatch up a 55 pound child and beat that child within an inch of its life and never break a sweat and she didn't care where you were you could be in church you could be in hudson's when my mother put her down she wiped her eyes my mother fixed her hair and then she snatched her back up again and she landed a few more before the sales lady finally said uh ma'am i think that's enough on the way home my mother was driving and growling at my sister stephanie the whole way don't you ever run off and do nothing like that again scaring me like that i swear to god i will be on you like we the people you ever do some foolishness like that again talking about boo i give you some boo
0: Family Ghosts is hosted, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. This episode was created in collaboration with Jason DeLeon, whose work you can hear these days on 99% Invisible. We also, of course, featured the music of Josh Ritter. Thanks again to Josh for joining us. And check out his website, joshritter.com, where you can hear more of his music and Something that didn't come up in this interview, learn more about his novels. We'll be back again in two weeks. Thank you for listening, Ghost Family. I'll talk to you then. ¶¶